Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 8, Ancient Barbarian Wisdom, Introducing Esoteric Orientalism. In the podcast so far, we've delved into two early cultural phenomena with central relevance to Western esotericism, the soul and magic. It's now time to turn to another essential ingredient of Western esoteric thought, namely astronomy astrology. But since the goal of the podcast is to cover all of our topics in as much detail as possible, leaving nothing essential out along the way, we need to go pretty far back to discuss this subject. In fact, any discussion of the origins of Western astronomy needs to go back to the Bronze Age civilizations of Mesopotamia, where the science was truly born. And no discussion of Western astrology can be complete without at least a quick look at ancient Egypt, where so many of the familiar tropes of astrological thought were born, or at least gained their lasting shape. Things like the zodiac, the decans, and so forth. Both of these streams of thought about the stars, the Mesopotamian and the Egyptian, were synthesized by the Greeks, and it's through Greek science that the astronomy-astrology synthesis that we know and love was transmitted into the West and into Western esoteric thought. So we have three large cultural blocks to look at when investigating the roots of astronomy in the West. Mesopotamia, Egypt, and ancient Greece. We ought to be able to dive straight in and look at the evidence, right? Well, in reality, it's not so simple. And you knew I was going to say that, didn't you? A lot of the evidence we have for ancient astronomy is Greek evidence, but it's not all stuff the Greeks themselves came up with. Very often we either suspect that it's stuff that they got from their Near Eastern neighbors, or we know for a fact that it is. So loads of early Greek scientific knowledge came from the older civilizations of the Mediterranean, Mesopotamia in particular. But we know that the Greeks had a peculiar and sometimes difficult relationship with their Eastern neighbors, a relationship which colors pretty much everything they have to say about them. And so this brings us to a problem which we should really address before we proceed further with our historical narrative, as it will be with us every step of the way. This is the problem of the complex relationship which the West has always had with its other, the East. Now, obviously I've done something very irresponsible here. I've spoken of the West as though it's perfectly clear what I mean, and the same thing goes for the East. But is it clear? And now that I think about it, this podcast has had a lot to say already about Western esotericism, but we haven't addressed what we mean by the West at all. This is a problem. Now, don't worry, this isn't about to turn into one of those methodological episodes where we spend the whole time looking at terminology and trying to define it. What it will be is an episode looking at a particular historical moment, the encounter between ancient Greece and its eastern neighbors that we see in the classical period, and discussing what that encounter has meant for the long history of Western esotericism. And along the way, we will meet some important friends who will be accompanying us down the ages. I refer, of course, to the ancient barbarian sages, Zoroaster, Hermes, Trismegistus, and, well, Moses. But let's look at the Greeks for a moment and think about who they were and what they were doing. And remember, lovers of Western esotericism, this is all aiming towards a full understanding of the historical development of esoteric ideas. And if you want to understand Western history of ideas, you need to understand the ancient Greeks. When we say the Greeks, in this case, we mean quite specifically the Greeks of the Classical period. That's the period of city-states beginning from around 750 BCE, give or take, up right through the Hellenistic and Roman periods. As we've seen in episodes 5 and 6, the earliest known Greek use of the term magos, or mage, dates from the very end of the 6th century, 
or the beginning of the fifth. In this period, we don't have to search very far to find the eastern other of Greek culture. It's the Achaemenid Persian Empire, who were busy swallowing up Greek city-states and repeatedly tried to conquer what's now known as mainland Greece. But the Greeks were a bit squirrely when it came to any foreigners. The English word barbarian comes from the Greek barbaros, which we could just translate as not Greek, non-Hellenic, but which certainly carried some condescending connotations as well. Non-Greeks were by definition not normal people. They spoke an unintelligible language, which just sounded like bar-bar, which is the likely derivation of the term barbaros. And generally, in a host of other ways, they were lesser people. But there's more to this picture than simple, blatant Greek chauvinism, because the Greeks also show a lot of respect for foreign peoples. The Persians are a case in point. We have plenty of examples of Greeks from the classical period onward insulting and mocking the Persians. They wear trousers like a bunch of sissy boys, while we, manly Greeks, wear chitones, or tunics. They employ archers in warfare, while we, the manly Greeks, go man-to-man with spears like proper soldiers. Their political system is one of absolute centralized tyranny, where all the people are essentially slaves, while ours is the proper system, the city-state, or polis, and we are polites, citizens. The list goes on, but you get the idea. But the Greeks also had a troubled admiration for many aspects of Persian culture. The ambivalent figure of the magos is a case in point. As we've seen in previous episodes, the magos in Greek meant a male practitioner of illegal and or morally suspect ritual acts. A black magician, if we want to speak in more familiar modern terms. But we also have some fascinating evidence that the Magos was seen as a religious specialist with a particular and very powerful hotline to the gods. So the verb magoin, meaning to do magic, to be a Magos, is succinctly defined in the late antique Greek lexicon of Hesuchius as, quote, sorcery, cultivation of the gods, goeteoin, therapeoin theus in Greek. So to a late antique dictionary writer, the Magos is a complex and not wholly negative figure. He does goetea, the bad stuff, but he also does therapeia, which is the good stuff. And we find similar appraisals in other authors. Again, as discussed in episode 6, we can't be sure at this late date how much the Greeks even thought of Persians when they used the term magos, and how much it was a sort of an ethnically neutral term, something like the word mage in English. But there are hints that its later uses did remain charged with a certain frisson of the exotic, as we shall discuss further later in this episode. Now, we've looked a bit at the obvious Greek other with a capital O, that would be the Persians, but when we want to look at the history of Western astronomy astrology, we need to consider other, much older civilizations, namely ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt. Time for a quick history refresher. The Mesopotamian civilizations had a history going way back to about 4000 BCE and even earlier but really kicking off with the Sumerians from about 3000 BCE in terms of widespread organized irrigation agriculture, cities with gigantic temples, a sophisticated and active writing culture, and eventually major state organization. The Achaemenid Persian Empire, who were the baddies of the classical Greeks, were merely the most recent iteration of a state power in the region, and the Greeks were well aware of this. They knew about the older civilizations of the Akkadians, the Babylonians, and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, Egypt was just Egypt. Egypt had been the home of a high civilization since roughly the 3rd millennium BCE, and the Greeks, of course, knew this as well. 
They might have been less clear on the dating than we are, but they knew the basic gist. The Egyptians were building huge temples and cities for a thousand years before the ancestors of the Greeks were even making metal tools. One last thing, we should mention the Greek Dark Age. The ancestors of the Greeks, the so-called Mycenaeans, were very different from the Greeks we know and love. Instead of the polis, they lived in cities based around palace complexes and seemed to have engaged in a top-down redistributive economy rather than the currency-based economies of the polis. And you can have a listen to episode four for a bit more on this change from gift economy to monetized economy. But from about 1200 BCE, something went horribly wrong. Nobody's quite sure what, but by 1100 BCE, the Mycenaean civilization had undergone a complete collapse. So the Greeks that we know and love begin from about 900 BCE. After about 200-300 years of rather brutalized living with massive population decline and loss of literacy that we associate with civilizational collapses, to climb back to civilization, this time armed with some powerful new technologies including widespread iron tools and the alphabet. So this is the beginning of the Classical period. The point here being that for Greeks of the Classical period looking back, there isn't necessarily a blank space in their history because of course their oral tradition bridged the gap that we call the Dark Age, but there was certainly a period of destabilization, population loss, and um, de-urbanization. So if we step back for a moment and think about the Greek city-states in the 5th century BCE, that's the time when we get Plato, Thucydides, Athenian democracy, and all that sort of iconic classical Greek stuff. They were really a new political form, just a few hundred years old, peopled by folks who were slowly coming out of a dark age, with two neighbors who represented cultural continuity going back thousands of years. We'd expect then that the Greeks would actually have a lot of respect for these ancient nations on their borders, and they did. But again, it was a respect colored by their Greek chauvinism. However, one thing is clear, the Greeks themselves tell us that certain important sciences, notably astronomy, astrology, and geometry, were inherited by them from the ancient barbarian peoples. The identity of these ancient barbarians shows some variation across our sources, but pretty much always includes the Egyptians, who are widely known as the founders of geometry in antiquity, and some group of Mesopotamians, often the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldea is a specific region in Mesopotamia, but the term Chaldean in Greek basically becomes synonymous for Babylonian. And these were the folks that the Greeks credited with having invented astronomy. So, did the Greeks get their scientific knowledge from their more ancient, civilized neighbors? Stay tuned, because that will be the subject of next week's episode. For now, though, let's look a bit more at these wise barbarians, or rather, at the Greek reception of the wise barbarians. Our evidence for classical Greek reception of their oriental neighbors is complex and has lots of gaps in it. What wouldn't we give to possess some of the works which we know existed written by bilingual Mesopotamians in Greek for a Greek audience, for example? But most of what survives is Greeks telling us about the foreigners. This means that our evidence is Greek and we have to be really careful when we interpret it as telling us about what foreigners were actually getting up to. Edward Said's concept of orientalism comes in handy here. What is Orientalism? Well, the original meaning of the term Orientalist was a Western scholar specializing in the East. So students of Arabic, students of Near Eastern civilizations, of Persia, of Egypt, have all been collectively called Orientalists. But when scholars nowadays talk about Orientalism, they're very often referring to the thesis of the book Orientalism by the English scholar Edward Said. 
Said's thesis is very complicated, but in a nutshell, I take it to be something like what follows. From the earliest times, the West has viewed the East not as it actually is, but through its own construction of how it is. In other words, Orientalists have made up an image of the Orient, which they then go on to interrogate for information about what the Orient is like. Now, let's have a look at this for a minute. This thesis, as I mentioned, has been hugely influential. It's also raised a huge number of criticisms. What are some of the valid points Said raises, and what are some of the problems with his theory? Well, Said's concept of Orientalism is very useful for referring, in a kind of shorthand way, to a genuine phenomenon which we do see throughout history the construction by Western Mediterranean peoples of their Eastern neighbors as a kind of other, with a capital O, the guys against whom we define ourselves. Said begins his narrative of the development of Orientalism with Aeschylus's play The Persians, and goes on from there. So the Greeks had the Persians, and we've seen some of the ways in which the Greeks defined the Persians as other in our discussion of magic. So that's the Greeks, but throughout the Roman Empire, the big military enemy also came from the East in the form of later successors to the Achaemenid Empire, the Parthians and later the Sasanians. So we also get a lot of what you might call Orientalism from Roman sources. And then later still, in the Christian Middle Ages, of course, we have the rise of Islam and some kind of self-definition composed of a Christian us and an Islamic them can be found throughout the history of European thought in the post-Christian era. In the modern period, which is when the Orientalist proper arises in the form of a scholarly industry based on the study and interpretation of the Orient, we of course see Europeans imposing their patterns of meaning onto Oriental peoples yet again. But we can ask whether all of these phenomena of history can usefully be described under one rubric, that of Orientalism, in the Saidian sense. The ancient Greeks thing about the Persians had some very specific roots, among them the fact that the Greek city-states were struggling militarily against the vast and powerful Achaemenid state, which had already swallowed up many Greek cities in Ionia. In other words, they had very specific local reasons for singling out the Persians as bad hombres. But medieval Christian demonization of Islam, even if it had some rough geographic parallelism with the earlier Greek orientophobia, was a very different thing. Are we really looking at parallel phenomena here? Probably not. In fact, I'm not alone in feeling that Said really oversteps the bounds of historical method in trying to draw an overarching grand narrative of Orientalism. The idea that from the earliest times, the West has been Orientalizing the East is just too simple. There have actually been incredibly complex interactions between Western and Eastern people and discourses, and they've varied so much in motivation, specific character, and result that I feel like grand narratives just don't really have a place here. That being said, we can still use the term Orientalism as a shorthand for describing the problem we have with our Greek sources when they talk about Egyptian and Mesopotamian civilizations. Their concerns and methods of interpretation are overwhelmingly Greek. So that is something to be aware of as we proceed to look at the next item on our list of things to discuss in this episode, the ancient barbarian sages. Now we're really getting into the true Western esoteric territory. The names of Zoroaster and Hermes Trismegistus, who are important sages in the Western tradition, in both Islam and Christendom, loom large here, as well as lesser-known names like Ostanes, Agathodaimon, and others. So who are these guys? One of the hallmarks of Western esoteric traditions is what has been called the authenticating apparatus. So what's that all about? 
In essence, an authenticating apparatus is a list of traditional authorities added to any statement to give it gravitas. The modern love of novelty, the idea that the newest ideas are the best ideas, is just that, a new idea. For most of Western history, the tendency has been to give at least notional support to the oldest ideas. The older an idea is, the more likely it is to be true. This is especially true in the later classical period. To take just one example, philosophy was something very new in Plato's time, in the 5th century BCE, but already in the 3rd century it had become normal to buttress philosophical arguments with reference to precedence. So you wouldn't say, I have this new philosophical idea. You would say, I am right because Epicurus said this, or I'm right because Plato said this, or whoever. In fact, we very often see in the history of philosophy ideas which really are new, but which are projected back onto earlier philosophers or onto barbarian sages to give them authority. So the philosophical movement of late Platonism, which is usually called Neoplatonism, is a case in point. Modern scholars have invented the term Neoplatonism, and the Neo here indicates that these philosophers were doing something new, something very different from what we find in Plato or in earlier Platonist philosophers. But the Neoplatonists themselves always define their works as explication of ancient doctrines found in Plato, and usually in Pythagoras and in the doctrines of the wise barbarian peoples. So in this sort of intellectual environment, where the default position was one of respect toward older ideas and traditions, it's quite natural that the Greeks sought to give their ideas credence with reference to the more ancient civilizations which surrounded them. Now, this tendency really took off in a big way in the Roman period, and it became a truly fully-fledged esoteric authenticating apparatus only in the post-Hellenistic world, and especially among the late Platonists. We'll be discussing these thinkers in some detail later in the podcast, as they are in some ways the first Western esotericists. But for now, though, we want to concentrate on the use or abuse they made of the ancient Eastern sages. The first name we need to look at is Zoroaster. Zoroaster is the Greek name for the sage Zarathustra, the founding figure of the ancient Median religion, now known as Zoroastrianism in the West. Now, Zoroastrians, of course, still exist. They've run into trouble in their native homeland of Iran, and most of them have emigrated to India or, interestingly, to Toronto, but they're still growing strong as a religion. Now, Zoroastrianism is one of those religions that, like Judaism, can point to an incredibly long history, but if we look at the evidence for the religion at different points in time, we see very different things. So it's evolved massively. But the ancestral early form of what we now know as Zoroastrianism was already going strong in Persia in Plato's time. And the Greeks knew about this founder figure, Zoroaster, as they called him, and generally reputed him to be among the most ancient of wise men. And incidentally, the Magoi were priests of this early Zoroastrian faith, as far as we can tell. So Zoroaster was, to an ancient Greek, an ancient and very hefty name associated with magic and all that goes with it, and with great antiquity. We also often come across the figure of Ostanes, who is somehow related to Zoroaster. Now this Persian duo had an extraordinarily long life in Greek Orientalism. And Zoroaster and Astanes figure prominently in Greek writings as ancient sages of proverbial wisdom. We shall encounter them in Gnostic writings, some of which were actually attributed to Zoroaster, in the alchemical tradition, in Sufi thought in medieval Iran, in Marsilio Ficino's genealogy of esoteric wisdom, and many other places besides. 
What's interesting is the degree to which the Greek Zoroaster and his later incarnations, which draw on the Greek, fits in nicely with Said's theory of Orientalism. Students of Western esotericism will encounter the figure of Zoroaster in all kinds of contexts, but no student of Western esotericism really needs to study Zoroastrianism, because the Zoroastrian elements in the Western Zoroaster traditions are pretty much non-existent. The Greeks seem to have loved Zoroaster as a figure of proverbial ancientness and wisdom, but they don't seem to have had much interest at all in exploring the beliefs of Zoroaster's Persian followers. The Orientalist Zoroaster appears as a Platonist, a Gnostic, an alchemist, a theologian along Christian lines, an esoteric monotheist along Sufi lines, even an atheist wandering prophet in Nietzsche's Alzolsprach Zarathustra. But what he never appears to be is a Zoroastrian. Listeners interested in the complex chains of transmission of the whole Zoroaster Ostanis complex should check out the recommended reading on the Schwepp website, where you can explore it in a lot more detail. Now, we don't have an equivalent figure from Egypt until the coming of Hermes Trismegistus. Now, the Hermetic writings date from late antiquity. Some scholars would say as early as the first century CE, but as far as hard evidence goes, we can say with certainty that the idea of Hermes the Sage is current in the third century CE, though in all likelihood it goes back a few centuries before. Hermes is interesting. He's an ancient sage, one who will feature centrally in the alchemical and magical traditions as well as someone who promotes the Platonistic religious ideas found in the Corpus Hermeticum. But in origin, he's a god, or rather, Hermes was a Greek god, and the Egyptian god Tehuti or Thoth reminded the Greeks of Hermes, who considered them the same god traveling under different names. Through a process which is now obscure in all its details, this god figure became an ancient wise man of the highest caliber. Like Zoroaster, we see all manner of amazing stories and doctrines and teachings associated with the figure of Hermes, including a huge amount of religious material. As in the case of Zoroaster, again, this material is recognizably Greek. Some evidence has been found in the Corpus Hermeticum for genuine aspects of Egyptian culture, but by and large we're looking at a Greco-Egyptian milieu for the origin of these texts, which doesn't seem to have taken on board anything that we might call native Egyptian. For more on the fascinating story of the evolution of the figure of Hermes, I once again direct listeners to the recommended reading section on the website. Now, we've named a few important names here, which we'll be meeting again and again in our exploration of the Western esoteric traditions, but ancient Greek Orientalism was not confined either to the big names nor to the big nations. In late antiquity, we see a number of contenders arise, especially among Platonists, as other members of the wise barbarians club the Indian Brahmans often feature, and indeed, we sometimes find them listed as wise men in quite early Greek materials. Again, we find little in the Greek writings on the Brahmans that indicates an understanding of Indian ideas. Aside from walking around naked, a practice for which there is some evidence in antique India, the Brahmans in Greek literature tend to be Greek sages set in an exotic Indian environment for the most part. In later antiquity, we sometimes see the Jews adopted into the Wise Barbarian Hall of Fame by Greco-Roman authors. It's not surprising that Philo of Alexandria, the fascinating esoteric Jewish philosopher of the first century, should reimagine Moses as an esoteric philosopher sage. But it is striking that Numenius, the pagan Platonist of the second century CE, rates the Jews among the Wise Barbarian nations and promotes Moses to a rank so high that Plato himself is described as Moses speaking Attic Greek. The reputation of Moses as a heavyweight sage had clearly grown outside of Jewish circles, but predictably, 
we see an adoption of the figure of Moses without much evidence for a deep ethnographic engagement with actual Jewish thought. The Greeks are of course aware that the Jews have a particular god whom they worship, and so Moses fits nicely into the discourses of what has been called pagan monotheism. In fact, Moses features quite prominently in pagan arguments against Christianity on the grounds that the Christians are not really monotheists and have therefore betrayed the ancient and therefore respectable tradition of Jewish monotheism founded by Moses, but we'll return to that debate in later episodes. Despite the prominence of these sages in later esoteric discourse, it's also important to remember that one didn't actually need to name names when constructing an authenticating apparatus. A simple reference to the wise and ancient barbarian nations was often enough to situate a given text as authoritative. More vague ethnic references were also common. The doctrines of the Egyptian priests, for example, or the Chaldean teachings are examples of a fairly common way of drawing on the authority of the ancient Mediterranean civilizations by the Greeks to give extra heft to what are usually Greek ideas. Now, the picture I've painted here is too simple, because as we've mentioned, the Greeks genuinely did owe a lot to their ancient neighbors, as we'll explore next week. But now, what I hope to have done here is given a fairly clear picture of the kind of orientalizing references that were habitually made by Greek authors, and to some degree by what might be called Greco-Roman authors later on, to the ancient civilizations of the Mediterranean region, and the ways in which the importance and wisdom associated with these nations might be appropriated by Greek wisdom. But now it's time to finish up the present episode. We started by lamenting our inability to discuss the origins of astronomy without going all the way back to the Egyptian and Mesopotamian Bronze Age civilizations, and then we came up against the problem of Orientalism in our Greek sources for these civilizations. This somehow led us to a discussion of ancient Greek ideas about wise barbarian sages, and here we are. So where are we? Well, we're now in a position, hopefully, to appreciate something called Platonic Orientalism. This term was actually coined by John Walbridge in a discussion of the work of the Persianate Sufi thinker Suhravardi, but it's been adopted recently by Walter Hanegraaff as a general term for the construction of authenticating apparatus by late Platonist thinkers like Plotinus, Iamblichus, and Proclus, who stand at the very beginning of the Western esoteric traditions proper. Platonic Orientalism, then, is a shorthand way of referring to the use of the ideological heft of the ancient barbarian peoples of the Eastern Mediterranean by ancient Greek Platonist philosophers to fortify their own ideas with more authority than they would get simply by claiming to be Greek philosophy. For late antique Platonists, the true philosophic wisdom was something more perennial than the Greek traditional philosophy with its history of a few centuries. The true account of reality goes further back and may be found in the lore of the ancient sages who predate the Greek Dark Age and Iron Age civilization more generally. This tendency to be both perennializing and orientalizing when referring to the true tradition of wisdom is something that we will find again and again in the history of Western esotericism. And this episode has hopefully given some insights into its origins among the Greeks. We'll look in more detail at the claims and counterclaims to possession of the true perennial wisdom which arose in late antiquity when we turn to the history of Platonism. But in the meantime, we still need to inquire into the origins of the sciences that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. The Greeks tell us that they acquired geometry and astronomy from the ancient barbarian peoples of the Eastern Mediterranean. 
the discipline of classics has claimed that the Greeks pretty much invented this stuff for themselves. Who's right? Find out next week as we discuss the origins of the sciences in the ancient Near East. And until then, try and be like the hidden wisdom of the ancient sages Zoroaster and Hermes, and stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>